You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Evelyn and Bobby's women-led intimates company creates beautiful, purposeful products to make women's lives better. They've created the best underwear ever, combining unique softness with smooth, flat seams that offer a fit so comfortable, you'll forget you're wearing them. Evelyn and Bobby comes in three silhouettes and one size that fits many, with four-way stretch that moves with you. Visit evelynbobby.com and use code Crime to get a free pair of knickers with any purchase. That's a $28 value only when you use the code CRIME at EvelynBobby.com. They say knickers. I like that. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, a podcast about serial, true crime, pop culture, and this week, a two-prong breakdown. First, we'll dive into Serial Season 3's third episode. Then, we'll try not to get indoctrinated into a creepy MLM sex cult <laughs> when we review Uncover, Escaping Nexium, a seven-part podcast series from the CBC. Joining me to get all that done is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and current paramour. Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. <laughs> it's sexy when you say it like that. <laughs> so it happens you let me write the script. I just go bananas. Oh, all right. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and autumn cold survivor, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Yeah, I'm back among the land of the living. I had the, I, I was like a man with a cold. It was really pathetic. Um, but I did. <laughs> Find a new show to binge watch while I was sick uh, that I'll talk about later. I started watching that show as well. Why don't you just talk about it now? Just mention it yeah, real quick. So I, I binged. Um, well, I'm, I'm on like the second season now of Scott and Bailey, mm-hmm. um, which is awesome. It is. Two super awesome women detectives. They're pretty badass. And it is written by the same woman who has done some of our other favorite uh, shows like Happy Valley and Last Tango in Halifax. Yeah. It's sort of like Rizzoli and Isles. In Manchester, mm-hmm. except also smarter and better with better mysteries and cooler people because yes. it's British. <laughs> anyway, yes. uh, finally with us, the captain of woke cynicism, the brilliant author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our very own Patreon book club podcast wrangler, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby Ball. V highs and Z, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, one thing I wanted to mention before we get started, two things, actually. Yeah. One is that we got a very mysterious email from a pair of listeners named... Jason and Samantha. Jason and Samantha inviting us to their wedding? Well, it's actually the after the wedding party. <laughs> okay. They're having it at the hotel. Yes. And the four of us got invited, and it was uh, it was this Saturday, so we just missed it. And maybe they're on their honeymoon. But well, I hope Samantha's so. a huge fan. She always she says we're the first thing she listens to when we we, we come out. And so anyway, best wishes, best Samantha wishes. and Jason. Yeah, we love you guys, especially you, Samantha. We don't know anything about this Jason fellow. Yeah, I hope <laughs> is he good enough for you? I hope so. <laughs> Do you think she would have let you walk her down the aisle? <laughs> Gee, uh, what Patreon level is that? <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Patreon levels, uh, we did launch a new level this week, the $6 level of our Patreon support. So you can do the $5 level or the $6 That's level. That's right. You can okay. get Toby's Book Club podcast at $5, but for $6, mm-hmm. you can join Laura Bricker in a exclusive Facebook group 
the Brichter Scale Laura Bricker Rage Walk True Crime and Fitness Inspiration Facebook group. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on in this Facebook group. There Rebecca. is. There's a lot. It's got a lot going on just like in the branding of it. But, you know, we yes. wanted to have a place for some of our listeners to gather and hang out with you, Laura. So sell it real quick. Well, it's great. So, you know, you all know that I am rage walking all the time. Well, I'm also apparently I've learned since we started this group raging about a lot in general. I'm finding many things like the grocery store, people that don't move their carts, people that are passing school buses when their lights are on. Um, So this is really giving me a place to sort of embrace this rage in a healthy way with Mm. others who are feeling the same way. So we're going to talk about, you know, where people exercise, how people are using um, listening to podcasts, especially rage-inducing podcasts, to motivate their exercise, and um, anything else that you all want to talk about. But it's it's been fun because there's a lot of like-minded people, and I'm finding out that you know I'm not alone. Um, so this could be like prancer size, but just a little bit more badass. <laughs> so basically, it's therapy for Lara that you yes. can also participate in for six dollars a month. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's her outlet that you can pay to be a part of. Right. It's not $11 a month. It's no. not five and six. You could either, it's you can stop at five six. or you could dig down really deep. Yeah. If you're already a five person, buck, you yeah. just add a buck and hang out with Laura. Oh, that's worth it. Or you can join at six and you can hang out with Laura and ignore Toby's book club podcast. That's right. You don't even have to go. <laughs> it's totally up to you what you want to do. It's just an option. <laughs> it's just an option. I'll be doing some live Facebook feeds. Um, I've done a few already. Um, so join me. All right. Well, that's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. As you hear the gentleman say at the beginning of the show. All right. You guys ready to talk about cereal? Let's do it. Let's do it. So let's get into that breakdown of cereal season three, episode three, misdemeanor meet Mr. Lawsuit. In this episode, our spunky and intrepid host Sarah Koenig, or Sarah Koenig, as we hear her called, goes on what seems like an impossible journey, following along as a black man who was beaten by an off-duty police officer tries to find some measure of justice. Technically, you can argue, and many police officers and prosecutors do, that justice was applied in Tamir Rice's case. But it doesn't feel that way. Instead, it feels like an open question haunting the courthouse. If you're harmed by police, what does it take to find justice in court that feels like justice? One way to try is by filing a lawsuit, suing the police. All right. Well, I want to talk about the opening scene of this episode, uh, which we also started last week's episode with talking about the opening scene. But this one is really interesting. It's at a community meeting about community policing. And what we hear uh, in this opening scene, and I think it's a very interesting place to start because they don't return to it. It's just it's one of those classic like public radio, like setting the scene scenes. You hear a clear divide revealed in the dialogue at the different tables. And that comes out when it's revealed that one of the people at the tables is Samaria Rice, Tamir Rice's mom. Uh, He, of course, was the young 11-year-old boy who was killed by police in Cleveland when he was carrying an airsoft gun in Mm -hmm. a playground. She is part of that conversation. And as Sarah Koenig says, she has some dreaded moral authority here. At first, I didn't understand what Miss Rice wanted from this meeting. She didn't seem interested in the stated mission of the workshop, the list of questions. All these questions is like for the community. 
when is the question going to be for the police? Because well, the they really need the, to be answering these right. questions. The reason this is not for the community. Though, well, this does. This I know, but community. I'm just saying I'm aggravated because that's what this meeting should be about. But you have to understand. All right, Kevin, what do you think of this opening scene? And is it fair for Samaria Rice to push back on this idea that she needs to be a part of the solution here for, you know, for cops to stop shooting unarmed black people, for cops to have better relationships with the community. Well, I, I have to say that I do like sort of uh, Sarah's sort of sad sack beginning, like at her table. <laughs> you know, yeah. The, the was, well, they should go talk to people and say they got to sleep at night. Yes. And at the other one, it's like, you know. Uh, hardcore. Hardcore. This is why black people are afraid of the police because of this history and that. When she said that, it kind of made me wonder, why are they having this meeting then right. you know, in the first place? Because right. Are the police really trying to get some feedback that they're going to take to heart? Is this a public relations thing? Are they looking at this as a way to school the community and not the other way around? I don't know. I just feel like when she kind of pushed back on that, I kind of thought to myself, this is, I think, a a somewhat pointless exercise to Hmm. do this because it just sort of illustrates I don't think either side is really seeing eye to eye on what how things should go. Yeah. Toby, what do you think of the opening scene of the podcast and, and what Samaria Rice is uh, you know, pushing back on this idea that like this has to be a two way street, this whole community policing idea and that the community is also responsible for doing something? You know, I understand the instinct behind the police just because I feel like I've been involved in plenty of sort of analogous things, which is let's engage with the stakeholders and, and see what they think and, and get them involved in the process and open uh, a dialogue like that those are all sort of these buzz phrases that like big organizations use when they're they're trying to like get input from the public or whoever they want to get input from so I, i sort of understand the instinct so i think especially in this situation from her standpoint and and then i would assume from the standpoint of her her neighbors and her her friends, it's the problem is with the police being heavy handed in our community. Mm-hmm. And to ask us what you want is sort of these granular little things. Like you want like these concrete suggestions, like if kids are partying, how should we address it? Yeah. It's like, no, that's not it. It's right. like there's this culture that you need to address, and it's really got very little to do with us. Right, right. Well, one of the things that we learned early in the episode is that the story that we're going to be looking at is in the absence of that criminal justice uh, for victims of police violence, we're going to look at the civil justice or the attempt at civil justice. So Sarah, we hear her in the car. Uh, She meets up with a lawyer named Paul Cristallo. Uh, His client is Aramis Spencer, who was beaten by an off-duty cop who was working as a security guard in his neighborhood in Euclid, Ohio, different community. Now, one of the things, Kevin, we go, we hear her in the car with Paul. They drive there as a very, I think, very Sarah Koenig aside where she's like, you don't have business with him today. You're just taking me out there so yeah. I can talk with him. And she's like, thanks. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's To me, like that's what makes cereal yeah. cereal, yeah, right? Before you get your question, I want to actually talk about that because – what we kind of really liked from Serial Season 1 in particular, the secret sauce was that we, and we didn't really figure this out till the end, is that it wasn't a non-story that we were listening to. It was Sarah Canning's story about going through the process and what she's learned and the mysteries about it were really sort of, you know, her thinking this through, just like the Da Vinci Code. And so, again, you know, this is a first-person journalism piece, and I think she's in You know, we're seeing that again where she's throwing in these little asides that make it sort of in her 
quirky voice, which she has. She's embracing that. You know, Battle of the Bulge, you know, that that kind of it doesn't really add anything to the greater narrative other than it adds the texture to what is a Sarah Canning piece. I really am glad that you brought that up yeah. because one of the things that I've been seeing, even on our own Facebook community, when they're comparing this season of Serial and the style of Serial in general to something like In the Dark, mm-hmm. I've seen people say, and Facebook, or if you're listening, I know you know who you are, um, that this isn't clearly isn't journalism. It's just a story that Sarah is telling. And I have a real problem with that. That is journalism. I feel like yeah. people don't understand what journalism is. Mm-hmm. This is a style of journalism. It doesn't make it less journalistic. She is going out. She's gathering facts. She's interviewing people. She's putting together a feature story that is of great import and which we will learn a lot of things or people who consume will learn a lot of things. And just because she says she does or doesn't like a person, just because she says thank you to one of the sources in the story, that doesn't make it less journalistic. It's just a style. If she yeah. took a bite of apple pie in the story and said, ooh, crab crib this is delicious yeah. would we say she's less objective because uh, she's saying the apple pie tastes take good? that same thing and take out all of the sarah you know quirky asides and instead put in a canadian documentarian talking about like wind how chimes the wind chimes <laughs> right but th- that's journalism and serials no it's just it's the style of which it is if you don't like the style that's fine but you can't say it's not journalism but, but the narrative this is narrative style journalism mm-hmm. that is a style of journalism that by the way was invented by men like in the 1940s and 20s and 30s and 50s. It's not new. It's being brought to audio form. It's a different delivery. It's a different style. I take umbrage, though. And I, it's a little, I mean, I don't want to call this listener. I'm not offended like I'm not mad at the listener. But I really feel like we do a good job on this show talking about things like journalism and audio production. And I worry that sometimes we aren't talking enough about it because I think people are left with the idea that just because something is fun, it's not journalistic. And that's just not true. All right, Toby, what are you going to say? Well, I, I mean, I'm not really rebutting because I basically agree with you. But I think the, I think the issue really is Sarah's the main character, as we, as we were just talking about. And that kind of changes. Like, there's, there's not a whole lot of, like, if you read the newspaper, like, there's not a whole lot of just newspaper articles where the journalist is the main character in the article that you're reading. I think that that's where it comes in. And it's not to say that, that that's the only kind of journalism there is, because certainly there isn't. I mean, this is she. This seems more like a magazine piece if you're comparing it to print, where there's more of a, like Hunter S. Thompson or David Foster Wallace or whoever, like this, Italy's, here yeah. I go, and here I'm about to do something, and this is what I found out, rather than sort of a more sort of straight removing the reporter from the story, right? you know, is anything more than just a writer. Your point is, you know, is obviously right. But I think that's where, I mean, I think sometimes the conversation is about, you know, this idea of journalism as being completely, you know, just the facts, yeah. which it, it, it isn't and never has been. Right. But that, but that means that In the Dark shouldn't have included like music in their podcast because the music adds an emotional element. And isn't that taking away from just the facts? I mean, every narrative audio story, every audio piece of reporting is going to have a point of view because no one wants to listen to someone read a newspaper article like nobody would subscribe to that stupid podcast. It would be terrible. Right. But even like newspapers, like, you know, they have pictures and <laughs> yeah. people are always pissed off at, at the pictures. And the reporters know. tweet. People and the, the, exactly. People think the pictures are, are, are showing bias. It, it, when I was at Congressional Quarterly, we'd get this sometimes. It was like you'd have like a head and shoulder shot of like Al D'Amato. Mm. They'd be like, oh, that's real, you know. 
Way to tip your hand, Congressional Quarterly. <laughs> like, what? I mean, I got it's one like of a picture those, of him walking on the street. I got one of those in the recent gubernatorial primary here in New Hampshire. I got an email that uh, one of the candidates we were showing in, in the picture, he was always smiling. And in the other candidate we were showing in pictures, she's always serious and that's sexist. And I was like, no, literally, that's what those two people look like at the event they were at together. Like, there's nothing I can do about that. I'm not like choosing the photo where, I mean, that's what they looked like anyway uh let's move on do, should I back to the content but i did want to address that and thank you guys for indulging me laura do you have any thoughts before we move on no i i agree i was gonna make the same point about narrative journalism okay we hear sarah and paul cristallo uh, go visit aramis and you know he tells a story about what happened to him and he sort of walks sarah through it and shows her the scene and this isn't what the episode is about but it's here. She throws it out there without saying it explicitly. But basically, you know, it, she makes it clear that Aramis has to, quote, you know, negotiate his interactions with the police. You know, and as a white person, I mean, we just need to be clear, like, that's not something that white people need to learn to do. Right. First of all, I don't understand how these off-duty cops still have arrest power if they're just off-duty working at detail or a private security gig. That seemed a little weird. But listening to how this all played out, like... It almost is like just because this guy is a black guy and he's knocking on a door, he looks suspicious. Like that's what burglars do, Laura. Don't you know that burglars always knock on doors? That's what they do. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, what? And this whole thing with him getting tasered seven times, and you're like, how did him just like knocking on a door in a building that he lives in? end up in this whole shit show that unfolded like it just doesn't even make sense but it 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 does make sense because it's like he was you know approached differently by the police um because of the color of his skin yeah that's commonplace i mean even buddy is all Which, fired up i hear him in the background i know buddy's <laughs> like fight the power, fight the power. <laughs> um you know and and listening to this the part that also really struck me from this is something i think i mentioned last week or i know i've mentioned before but this phenomenon of overcharging suspects yes, yes. when they are arrested specifically because, you know, and I experienced this as a defense investigator, so that when they're trying to resolve the case, either before trial, through a plea or whatever, they're going to negotiate down to the charges that actually stick. But they're going to throw as many out there as they can when they when they start off. And it's it's not legitimately what happened. It's it's just part of this whole strategy process, which right. is really kind of ridiculous. Right. Laura, what do you think of the character of Paul Cristallo, former city lawyer who used to defend the cases he now pursues on, on, on behalf of victims of police brutality? Do you know anyone like that who's ever like change their mind and, and like just change their career mid-course that way? I do. I know lots of people who've gone back and forth and you know I, I, I don't think it's as uncommon I, I loved the description though it sort of illustrated how he used to have like the two BMWs and now he's driving the Hyundai mm. and he's not mad but it's like yeah he's it not making as much <laughs> it still bothers him even though he pretends it doesn't um, <laughs> but I, I do think you know he saw the light or or perhaps maybe he felt like using his powers for good but you know that that does happen and it also happens the other way like I know somebody that worked in defense for like decades who now is working as a prosecutor right so it, it, you know that does happen now Toby one of the things that you pointed out in the notes you sent me today um is the way that Paul has to negotiate this lawsuit on behalf of Aramis with the city of Euclid. He has to slow walk the case in court, you know, keep the suit a secret, and he hires a beard attorney. 
to show up for him. What do you think of like this whole process? The term that this guy is negotiating just so that he can get this guy some measure potentially of justice for having the shit beat out of him by this off-duty cop. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting because so much of it's counterintuitive. Like, it kind of starts off with like he doesn't want to bring him to court. When he's looking all beat up. Yeah. I think most people's thing is, no, you totally bring him when he looks all beat up because that's going to like inflame anybody who sees it and that's going to be better. But, you know, the fact that that might tip him off that there's going to be a civil suit, he's like, no, we can't do it that way. We have to do it to minimize his injuries. Hmm. And I can't be involved in you because they'll know that we're going to sue. Part of that strategy is just... To make it minimize the optics right. of his being a victim of police brutality so that the city doesn't suspect that they're going to bring a suit so that they can, in fact, bring a suit. Right. Again, I thought at the end, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but when she asks him about when you were on the other side, did the fact that you were worried about a civil suit cause you to like dig in your heels on certain charges and not not be willing to negotiate a plea for them. And he sort of ashamedly admits that that was part of the deal. Right. And it sounds like that was one of the reasons why he left. Right. He also sort of shamedly admits that he kind of obstructed justice by colluding with cops about their testimony using words like furtive and his hands right. were moving and all the tactics they would use to be able to <laughs> listen to Laura. She's <laughs> <her> mind. <laughs> but, you know, I think there's this there's the, the way the system is set up, the fact that the cops and the government's attorneys are just always working together. Right. What safeguards can you put to keep that from becoming a corrupt relationship? And, you know, I, I don't think that's something that there's been an answer to. It seems like the only tool at the defendant's disposal is to make off like maybe there won't be a civil suit. Right. Whereas the government has the ability to... Lie in court. To overcharge. <laughs> yeah. And make it as hard as possible and sort of... Uh, try to negate and uh, ruin the credibility of the suspect merely by adding charge upon charge upon charge yes. to make him look like a badder guy than they are, a more bad guy than he is. And the prosecutors colluding with the cops to make up a story that they'll tell in court and the judge pretends to take notes of something that she didn't actually hear. Yeah, you know, some of that also, <laughs> well, but I think some of that is sort of a rote yes. laziness. Yes, the judge is so used to hearing the bulge that a she wrote the bulge down. Yeah, they said, oh, you said it was the bulge? Yeah, okay, I, I got that. You know, if all of a sudden, Rebecca, tomorrow you had to go and uh, be on the stand as a police officer and talk about something, you, you would do the same thing because it isn't a secret. Right. And you've done it before. Right. It isn't like the prosecutor pulled the ro Oh, Sarah Koenig is here. Koenig. Koenig. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the term furtive, you know. Right. Uh, it's it's already been, you know. It's code. It's yeah, it's, it's already baked into the cake right. for them. So it uh it, it it doesn't matter. Now, there are a couple of interesting tidbits we learned in this episode. We do hear about this other community, Euclid, and how they have all white elected officials and mm -hmm. how they have tougher, way tougher pot laws than they do in Cleveland, which I think is a little bit of a no-duh moment. Another bit a little bit of a no-duh moment is uh the statistics that we hear about police brutality cases resulting in communities not trusting the police <laughs> and 911 calls going way down. And, you know, I heard that. I'm like, that all makes sense. Maybe that's new information to people who don't know it, but it all makes sense to me. Then there is one moment in the podcast where 
my least favorite version of Sarah Koenig comes out. And I like to call that naive Sarah Koenig. So she asked Paul what seems like an absurd question, at least to me. The goal of Paul's lawsuit, aside from getting Hermes some justice and some dough, is to force police to account for their behavior, to answer for it. And I asked him, setting his own livelihood aside, isn't it possible that his involvement could actually be hampering progress? Say Aramis went to the police department and complained to the supervisors. Or the use of force in the officer's report triggered an internal investigation. And say that process were allowed to play out without the specter of a lawsuit. Isn't it possible the department would fix itself? Toby, thoughts? Can these departments just fix themselves? I think we need to start back in the 1800s with the (laughs) establishment. (laughs) Now, I think, I I mean, all you have to do is listen to the Loomis portion. And you realize that that, that there's... There's going to be so much resistance. Yeah. Well, let's talk about our friend Steve Loomis, shall we? Oh, Jesus. I'm going to drop a piece of tape here because there's a complaint I made last week, and I think she rectifies it this week. Bald-headed, meaty-fisted Steve Loomis, the guy who dressed convincingly in a Santa hat at the department's Christmas party and as the dirty biker hillbilly dude when he worked undercover, will say whatever the hell he wants. Steve Dettelbach can kiss my ass. Thank you, Sarah Koenig, for a description of a man. I know I gave you some shit last week for only providing physical descriptions of women, and that was a pretty good one. This is a former union president cop, openly racist, but talks to Sarah on the record for hours and hours. Just, just if you see his First Amendment rights. To be racist. To be racist. That's right. Um, Laura Bricker. I'd love to hear what you think about our friend Steve Loomis. Oh, my God. I'm just uh, I'm amazed he was voted out. I mean, come (laughs) on. Um, No, I just I was listening to this and I was just like, oh, my God. I mean, but I also back to the description. I loved that he was both Santa and a dirty biker hillbilly dude when he went undercover. I thought that was also. (laughs) Yeah, that gave me a good visual as I was listening to him and just being like, oh, my God. And what was good about this part was, you know, this guy is like clearly off the rails in terms of, you know, he's got very strong opinions that don't seem like they're going to budge, that don't really seem conducive to making any sort of forward progress with that relationship between the police and the citizens. Um, That's a nice diplomatic way to say that he was awful. Um, But Sarah actually points out that she, she doesn't like, you know, this guy is awful. But she says... She doesn't like him. She can't like him even after six hours, but she can appreciate him. Hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure why she appreciates him. Maybe he's willing to talk. Um, I think that's why she appreciated him. I think she was being He kind. was willing to just keep digging himself into a hole. The part that really, really pissed me off when he was talking, and I was just like, this is when I was like, I'm going to pop this guy in the head, in his big Santa head, was when um, he was talking about the shooting, the case that we talked about Tamir in the beginning. Rice. Tamir Rice. And he kept referring to him as big. And he was a child in a man's body. Yep. And he's not the product of a loving home. So this justifies him being shot? Yes. Like, are you freaking kidding According me? Like, oh, he was, he's big. So, you know, he's he's like a man. So we didn't know he was 12. So, yeah, it's like totally fine. And his in his fault. home, you know, he, his parents should use some of the money they got to, like, you know, fix their home life or something. I'm just like, fuck you. Yeah. Like, seriously, shut up. What did she say? We need your tax dollars. What we don't need is your oversight. When he started talking about basically the same mantra that we hear all the time, that this isn't even because we're all a bunch of racists, it's because we're understaffed. Right. Unfortunately, when you hear something like this, because like I hate to like categorize, we know like not all doctors are like Dr. Death, 
not all police officers are like Steve. We know that. But when you hear somebody like this, you can see how one person like this can spread this toxic belief through other people in the department. Right. I mean, he, he does voted to be the union head. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's he's... right. He didn't spread it. He was elevated. Yes. But yeah. It's somebody like you just know, just irredeemable in the idea that he's going to embrace any him. He personally is going to embrace any kind of justice reform, police procedural reform, which is what we want. We want to have an enlightened police force that understands these things can say, you know, this this isn't working right. This thing, we can do something better here. This part works okay. This part needs to be reformed. Whatever. This guy's classic fake this news This is just thinking. everything. Yeah. Every statistic she would give him that was real, he'd be like, that's not true. That's yeah. not true. He was just the worst. Yeah. I mean, he was but the worst. Can, yeah. You could spend six hours with him. You're not going to change his mind. He has an idea of how the police what their job is, and if we can't do it that way, then uh, fine, we won't take your calls. Police are justified in shooting any suspect, he says, mm. because on the suspect to not be shot, yeah. even if you're an 11-year-old boy carrying a toy gun. Yeah, You know, I, I think it's this refusal to concede any ground. Mm-hmm. It, it just makes it so tough. And it's any time a cop does anything, it's justified. No matter how pro-police you are, that's just a crazy outlook. There's no profession that's going to have that many people in it where everybody's going to make the right call all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and no matter how much you revere whatever, part of protecting the institution is going to be ensuring there's some standards. It makes it hard to be optimistic that you can have even like small bits of reform because, you know... Even the best organizations are not perfect. Right. And you have to be willing to self-examine. I, I just, I just want to go on a, like a bit of a limb here because I know that sometimes when we talk about these issues, there is like an immediate sort of a reflexive reaction people have to be like, you're cop bashing. How can you be not be pro-law enforcement? If you can listen to this guy, just say what he says on this podcast He's being open. She didn't trick him. You hear their back and mm-hmm. forth dialogue. And that's why I think it's one of the stronger moments I've heard, I think, in any episode of Serial, because you hear her and she, you know, she concedes that sometimes she laughs because she doesn't know what to do and she's transparent about it, which I think is fair to say many of us would be like if we were in a conversation with someone like this. If you can hear this guy say what he says and think that he's fine. Mm-hmm. With what he's saying, you probably shouldn't actually be in our Facebook group. <laughs> like, because it's not cop bashing to say that this guy is a lunatic. He's completely out of his goddamn mind. It, yeah, it's, it's not cop bashing. It, it's it Steve Lewis no, bashing. Because good cops yeah. want him to do his job the right way. They it want him out. It isn't a blanket thing against all cops. A good cop wants him a out. A good cop knows what his job is or her job is, and they do it the right way. And a lot of them, when they see a guy like this, it's like... You're giving us all a bad name. There's a way to do the job right and professionally, and that's not it. He won the election among his peers, though. Toby's right. Yeah. It's important <laughs> to point out. All right, well, we have to move on because we're only like halfway through this episode yeah. at this point, and this podcast is only so long. We talk about the case. Yeah. I know. We have to go back to Aramis's case. The city keeps the criminal charges in, probably because of the lawsuit. His lawyers know that Sarah Koenig is in the courtroom, and so does the judge. As I advised all the parties, I have Sarah Koenig from the Serial Podcast who is asking to record these proceedings. (laughs) (laughs) So much drama. Sarah asks, does the city not want to go on with the hearing because they know she's there? 
Are they actually that shady? Fuck yeah. They probably are. So here we are. We're in the case. We hear the other lawyer, Spiro Skinakis, a very spirited attorney, by the way, who has some pretty good jokes. I tend to put my hands in my pockets while I ask questions. I don't want to make you nervous, right? I don't have any contraband down there. Objection. He's kind of a dick. He's, yeah, that's an like, asshole. <laughs> but you want him on your side, yeah. <laughs> but does anybody on this panel believe? But the, the the ju- I think the judge uh, sustained. She sustained. No, she she, she overruled, overruled the that objection. objection. Yeah, yeah. She sustained a later one. Well, I I do want to get to sort of the meaty moment of this trial because this is about you know that cop uh, on the stand, Michael Amiot, and he is going through the story of what happened with Aramis and how he ended up getting beaten up and arrested. He talks about searching him. He talks about moving the hand he talks about this and that and then he says out of nowhere i believe it's the prosecutor who makes the statement that there was a bulge in his pocket and everybody freaks out spiros skinakis freaks out sarah koenig is like what i didn't hear that and we hear the judge saying it's right here in my notes and am i the only one who thought this whole time like sarah koenig sitting in the courtroom recording this do we have recording of whether or not somebody said that yeah, I think they also right. have a court reporter there that's taking notes on this, right? Someplace? Laura, what did you think of this moment in the hearing? I'm sure you've been in tons of hearings like this. Yeah, it was kind of bullshit. Um, <laughs> it, this was during the whole thing where we were talking again about like the different buzzwords and the different things. It's like when you see a police report, anytime you see a police report that's like a drunk driving arrest, it always includes the... I noted glossy eyes and the odor of alcohol mm. as soon as I asked for their license. Like, there's certain things that they always sort of throw in there. I mean, yeah, I noticed the bulge in the pants or, you know, whatever, the battle of the bulge, whatever she said. But, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I guess that's the thing is it doesn't surprise me because I've seen things like this happen. Does, does anybody besides me want to know what that argument in the judge's chamber was about, uh, was about, about Sarah Koenig being in the courtroom? Because I really do. Yeah, yeah. I, I think something something is uh, going on, obviously. But it was interesting to me that she got this access, unprecedented access to record everything. And then there's this instance, like, were there more instances where people She's in a who different didn't realize, courtroom, though, right? Yeah. Courthouse, I mean. One of my the most interesting things about that for me was it's the first time in the, in the history of this series that we hear the serial brand podcast being mentioned as the thing that's being made. It was a very meta moment because the style of this American life reporting and serial reporting is like, we're just here. We're observing it. We're recording Mm -hmm. it all. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows who we are. And we're just, you know, being these little sly bugs in the wall. It's the first time that the success of serial and serial itself is invoked by a third person. I thought it was a very interesting, like, fourth wall moment in the podcast. And one that I'll probably remember because I'm wondering if it's going to happen again in this series or if that was a standalone. I don't know. I thought it was interesting and weird. Took me out of the texture, but I liked it. So at the end of the episode, we hear uh, this lawyer, Paul, calling Sarah because I want to like do the heaven sounds here with the harps and the ah mm-hmm. sound. There's been a miracle. And I thought, wow, something really great must have happened. Like Aramis must have been cleared of all the charges. No, no, no. That's not what happened. Uh, turns out Michael Amiot, the cop who was the one that beat Aramis up, was caught on video beating somebody else up. Yeah, and great for that other guy. That is the case we're going to be talking about not. next week. So it sounds to me like what we got here was the civil look uh, at a, an obscure civil case, someone trying to get justice who isn't known. Mm-hmm. And next we're going to have the contrasting look at somebody who is known and whose case goes very public. You think the focus will pivot off of Aramis's case to the second case? 
I kind because of thought I that's think, how she teased it at well, the end. Yeah, but I think it's also really interesting to stay with Aramis's case because the ones that get videotaped and make the nightly news are so rare. Right. Again, we're ta- if, the, if the premise is the real look at the justice system is not the unusual extraordinary case a la Adnan Syed, then it is about these smaller cases and, and the, you know, the things about the overcharging and the going back and forth and the negotiating and whatnot. And I think I really would like to see how having the, you know, the cop who allegedly used excessive force on Aramis all of a sudden wind up in this major case and now his credibility is as a witness, one would think is ruined. That's exactly where I thought it was going, Kevin. I thought that 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 was the reason that the attorney was so excited because he's like, now all those lies that this cop told, you know, during this hearing, it's kind of a, you know, that's something that can be challenged now because this guy's credibility is going to be called into question in a major way in such a way that they may just settle Aramis's cases or drop them because they don't want to deal with them now. So that's where I thought it was going. That's what I was curious about. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's all go around the horn and give a letter grade to this week's episode of Serial Season 3, Episode 3, Misdemeanor. Meet Mr. Lawsuit. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Get the episode letter grade and briefly explain why you are giving it that grade. I'm still going to go with my like A minus B plus range because, you know, this is really well done. Obviously, it's serial. Sarah does this very well. But at the same time, I feel like we've heard a lot of stories similar to this in terms of breakdowns in the criminal justice system. So I want to see maybe a bigger picture um, before I bump my grade up. But it's still excellent to listen to. Toby Ball, what about you? What letter grade do you give this episode of Serial Season 3 and why? I actually thought that this was sort of Sarah's best episode of all the seasons in terms of just her reporting. I, I think the the segment that she has with Loomis is pretty unbelievable. And she does a good job of just like not letting him off the hook. Mm. You know, I mean, she's she she's tough with him. So yeah, I'd give it an A. I, I thought it was really, really strong. Yeah, I'm going to give it an A too, mostly because I've never heard a story about a civil suit like this on a podcast before. I've never heard it reported before. I've never read a story like this before. And the beginning of the episode, we're hearing the sort of some of the no duh statistics. I was like, oh, this is straying into B territory for me. And then the second half of it really, for me, brought it all the way back up to an A. When we heard the civil suit scene, we heard the courtroom scene, we heard the sort of fight about her being there, and then her conversation with Loomis, for me, really capped it off at A level two. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, I'm an an A. Again, I think if this were an assignment that uh, she turned into Professor Flynn, I would... Put a big A on it and pass it back. Did you miss Emmanuel a little bit? Because I kind of missed him a little bit when I heard it. Now that he's been tweeting back to us, I got to say. Yeah, we found out that that it wasn't like he just grew up in Cleveland and had a British accent. He's an immigrant to the U.S. who came here when he was a kid. He tweeted back to us. We posted the tweet on our Facebook page if you guys want to see the backstory. Sarah did make it kind of sound like it was. More mysterious than it was. More mysterious (laughs) than it was. Yeah, I I give it an A. I mean, I I think it's, it's a great look at sort of a microcosm of the justice system. It's not the big picture ever. It's just telling the big picture by looking at the small picture. Right. And in order to do that, you have to be able to see clearly, which is why you need simple contacts. Yes, simple contacts. They let you conveniently renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your contacts from anywhere in just minutes. Vision care for the 21st century. It's the best. So again, you can't replace your periodic full eye exam, right? No. But as far as your contact exam, you can use their app. On your phone. On your phone. At work, in the break room, at lunchtime, like I did. 
wherever, the car. I mean, maybe not where you're driving. As long as you get 10 feet away from your phone, you can do it. And then uh, that test is examined by a, a professional. Doctor. Yes. And then you're good to go. You can get all your Simply Contacts, contacts sent right to your home. That vision test is just 20 bucks, by the way. And the contacts, the prices on the contacts are unbeatable. Standard shipping is free. Rebecca, you got a whole box of contact lenses. I bought a year's worth of contact lenses from Simple Contacts. Was it an off-brand? No, it was my very specific brand and very specific multifocal magnification yeah. lens that, like, when I go to my eye doctor, they have to order them. It takes, like, a week for them to come in. Simple Contact just had them in stock, sent me a year's worth in a box. It was amazing. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, using their buying power and passing the savings on to you. <laughs> Get $20 off your contacts at simplecontacts.com slash CWO20. CWO20. Or enter code CWO20 at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash CWO20 or enter CWO20 at checkout to get $20 off your contacts. What else you got, Kevin? Well, we have a new sponsor we want to say hi to. It's BioClarity. Hi, BioClarity. BioClarity is the clean and green skincare line that'll help you get naturally glowing skin. Oh, is that mask that you did a couple nights ago? BioClarity? Yes. <laughs> it was so cute. Yes. So these products are 100% vegan, cruelty-free, paraben-free, sulfate-free, and artificial fragrance-free. So one of the, the products, as you say, is the mask. The clarifying mask is their pore purifier, mm -hmm. so it shrinks the appearance of pores without drying out your skin. Even I tried it. I know you did. Even I, you. Even you only tried it. I did the eye cream. You did the mask. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, it has great things like uh, Floralux, tea tree, aloe. It smells really good. Yeah, and I look great. It's like getting a facial in a flash. Your pores were much smaller in appearance afterward. And now I'm ready to go out on the town. <laughs> you can get started on healthier habits with your skincare. Just go to bioclarity.com. Our listeners will get 15% off their entire first purchase, plus shipping is free when you buy a routine. It comes with a 100% risk-free money-back guarantee. But you need to enter our code CRIME. CRIME. That's bioclarity.com and enter code CRIME. CRIME. Moving on. Now we're going to talk about a seven-part podcast that's pulling a lot of people in. It's called Escaping Nexium, and it's under the showcase podcast brand Uncover by the CBC. And then she comes in and says, I want to introduce you to your sisters. You can take your blindfold off. Over the past few months, I've been investigating Nexium, a bizarre self-help group led by someone who calls himself the smartest man in the world. How he won the endorsement of actors, politicians, and even a visit from the Dalai Lama. How he spent millions of dollars to destroy his detractors. And how he created a harem of devoted women. The podcast follows host Josh Block as he unpeels the layers of a story told to him primarily by his childhood friend Sarah Edmondson, a Canadian actress and high-profile escapee of an organization called Nexium, that is spelled, by the way, N-X-I-V-M, all capital letters, Prosecutors are making the case that Nexium is a creepy, financially fraudulent sex cult, but those under the spell of leader Keith Rainier call it a successful business built around transformative self-help principles and apparently branding. Uh -huh. Not the good kind, the scary, hot, pokery brand kind. 
Now, spoiler alert, we will be talking significantly about plot points in Escaping Nexium. So check the show notes if you haven't listened yet and just want to hear our thumbs up, thumbs down review. We will put a time code there. Uh, first off, you know, I love talking about the style of production of these podcasts. I'll just start out there. I love the likability of Josh Block. I think he's an incredibly appealing host, writes well for himself, delivers it well. I love the amazing Battlestar Galactica-esque theme song of this podcast. (laughs) And I love his varying pronunciations of the city of Albany. I think he pronounces it like 17 different times in the show. I find that all... it's kind of like my name. Yeah, it's just going there, yeah. (laughs) Very appealing. Anybody else with me on the enjoying Josh Block and his delivery and persona train on this podcast? Toby, did you like the guy as much as I did? I don't know if I liked him as much as you did, Rebecca. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, he was good. He was good. I listened to it like in one... Like on a long car ride, mm. I just like went one after the other. Yeah. So it was like having him in the in the passenger seat. Laura, you like Josh Block as much as I do? I do. All right, good. Now, Kevin, I want to ask you a question because mm-hmm. we talk a lot about journalism and sourcing on the on the show. And while this podcast does tell a larger story in seven episodes, there's a primary source here, and it's Josh's personal friend, Sarah Edmondson. And much of the podcast, I don't want to give it like a percentage. Well, okay, I'm going to. I want mm-hmm. to say like maybe 60 to 70% of what we hear on the show is literally just her telling him stuff. Uh, you know, as a journalist, I kind of think like that's not the way you would typically do it. Mm-hmm. But it also feels kind of dishy and good. What did you think of the style of, of the way that he got the story and, and it was the way it was sort of put together? For some reason, it works in the, the first couple of episodes when we hear Sarah. We, one of the things that we don't like to hear in podcasts or these too long of a soundbite answer, you know, kind of thing without any context, kind of running on too long. But Sarah's story was just so compelling, so interesting that you could just let her go and talk for four or five straight minutes. And cry. Cry. And cry. I have to tell people because it has to be stopped. And cry. It isn't until, I don't know, was it like maybe the third episode where they really start bringing in other people? There were a couple, you heard a couple other voices previously, but it really wasn't more of a balanced storytelling technique till a little later on. Yeah. Um, Many of the episodes are different. So I don't know if that makes it uneven, but there are definitely episodes that I liked better. Some were not the texture of the rest of it. Yeah. But I think that the beginning was really, really strong because of... Sarah and her personal story and the and, way she told it. And her relationship with Josh, which... Well, I mean, I guess that benefits... Her candor was certainly higher, I think. I, I suppose, right? but I, I think if she told the same story to you, I don't think it's any less right. uh, impactful because you didn't go to summer camp with her. I thought it was dishy. I don't know. I liked it. Uh, I, I want to talk about sort of the cult aspect of the story. Now, Toby, I got a Twitter DM from our friend Michal, who also sent me a Twitter DM for last week's show that I did not include. So I'm going to include her this week because she said uh, basically something that I was thinking. She said, I feel like a bad person for saying this, but I am almost pissed off by the fact that Keith Rainier is masquerading as some genius when he blatantly ripped whole chapters out of the Scientology playbook. <laughs> come on, dude. Reincarnation, fixing the world, code names, levels, suppressives. At least come up with your own cult, she says. Toby, what do you think as our resident cult expert? Is this cult just a ripoff of every other cult we've heard about so far? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's obviously Scientology. Uh, and then I think there's like Est, and he talks about the human potential movement. 
and things like that. I mean, it it seems like sort of a mishmash of sort of stuff you would have picked up in California in like the 70s and 80s. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. He would defend himself by saying, well, you know, I'm synthesizing all the like best parts of all of these things and, and into something that's that's a greater whole. But, yeah, I mean, I think, he, you know, he's cribbing stuff from here and there and kind of tossing it together in a different, slightly different way. Well, of course, he ripped off Scientology. His first business, he also ripped off Amway. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So he basically takes, you know, something that he knows and makes it his own. And yeah, the parallels to Scientology are, are obviously there. I think the the difference is that Scientology is a cult run as a business, and his ESP is a business run as a cult. Hmm. They have so many different crossovers. But I think right. I mean, with they were sort of honest. I'm not honest, but you know, the positioning was kind of like, okay, all of you ladies, come on in and give me your money, and we're gonna. <laughs> Get yeah. it on. Right. Well, that that first thing that he was doing, and I can't even remember what it was, but it was Consumer some or something. Little, yeah. The buying yeah, club. Some little, yeah. And, and then he, some woman says to him, she's like, you're the smartest man in the world and you're doing this? <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, just for a little while, to, you know, so I'll get my feet underneath me. So, Laura, one of the interesting aspects of this story is the way... I mean, this is what I hear. I hear feminism and a lot of code words around women and women in particular being targeted by this guy and this next team. I mean, they, they create this sort of sub-brand DOS, this like, quote, women's empowerment mm-hmm. group. And then you hear in like a lot of the philosophy that they're espousing in these courses, you know, you hear Sarah telling stories about how she's sort of trained to say things like, you know, women, we're just too wrapped up in our emotions. You know, women, we just need to get over ourselves. And just if we could just be more like sort of using the language of feminism in a negative way to sort of tell women that they shouldn't be women, they should be something different. But yet there's still women and they're empowered. And the way they express this is to bring them into this club and brand them. What did you think of that whole thing, Laura? Yeah. So I have to say, um, that was the first episode, and what a way to start off a podcast series. Wow. It was probably one of the more, more horrific things I think I've listened to in a podcast, mm. this description, because I, she's talking about the cauterizing iron, and that one of the women that there is a freaking doctor who's doing this to these people, and they're all standing around holding this person down. I'm like, I was waiting for somebody to give her a stick to bite on or something. I mean, it was just like so out of, I had never heard anything like this. Quick question, Laura. Did you wonder like I did why they had to use this like drawing pencil and why they couldn't just like go into the Sky Mall catalog and buy one of those personalized (laughs) brands that they sell like for steaks Uh and you can design yourself? Wouldn't that have been easier than drawing it by hand every time? I think this was part of just the insanity of this yeah, whole thing. Yeah. But this this was the part is I felt like this podcast started off really strong with this extremely compelling description of what this was like, what it was like for her when she got there. And she's basically trying to just like hold it all in to set a good example. And I'm like, oh, my God, you are so brainwashed right now. Uh, for me, after this like out of the gate bang, it kind of dropped off. And I was like, uh, it's just like another cult now. Mm-hmm. Like, OK, there's some crazy guy in charge. He's taking your money. You have to do what he says and you have to have sex with him. I'm like, this kind of sounds like other ones we've listened to. <laughs> but but the branding thing was just, oh, my God. Yeah, um, yeah just 
I can't even imagine. There were a couple things that did remind me of some of the Scientology reporting and Scientology insights we've gotten from like Leah Remini and so forth. Mm -hmm. One of them was the whole collateral thing. Reminded me very much of the auditing process in Scientology. Because auditing, you know, she says on that TV show she makes is really about people saying shit they don't want other people to know and right. blackmail yeah. them yeah. with the auditing material. And that's what this collateral thing was. It was much more blatant, though. Yeah. Like, literally, this was the laziest system. At least with auditing, like, you have to pay for it. It takes many, many hours, and they draw you in. Yeah. This the Scientology, they, they don't say, hey, can you get naked and- This is lazy. Pick up your thighs. And, yes. Yeah. This, this cult is lazy. <laughs> They're like, you have to give us collateral so that we you'll never tell anybody what we're doing. That's fucking lazy. But that's not for everybody, right? That's just for like getting into this like super secret inner circle. Oh, of das, yes. Empowered women and stuff. Yes. I mean, I think that's always that should be the warning sign. <laughs> you think? Is if you're in a cult and they're like, well, do you want to join the like inner circle and learn all the secrets? It's secret. And, uh, <laughs> and that's the point which you should say no. It's all good right here. <laughs> On Leah Remini's TV show, when she talks about reaching that level where they actually learn, like, the origin story of Scientology, and she was a true believer up until that point, and she actually hears a story, and she's like, this is batshit crazy. Yeah. She's like, that was the moment. So tell well, me- the, Who's it, Paul Haggis? Yeah. <laughs> who, who yeah. The big uh, New Yorker article about it, and he's like, yeah, you go into this room, and there's this box, and it's got a piece of paper in it, and you pull it out, and it's about, like- giants living in volcanoes and, <laughs> you know, stuff and he's like at first i thought it was like some kind of like was it a test like yes. are they trying to see like how you're going to react to this and and how am i supposed to react to it i was kind of hoping for something like that here that that's something a little more compelling to have made people believe that yeah this is a cool idea to brand ourselves it was a I lazy mean, cult laura it was lazy they just they- I, I i feel like they needed a better <laughs> philosophy i'm just thinking i think they just went in hard with the money like you made a lot of yeah. money when you were at this level and so therefore the philosophy just could be you know what it really reminded me of even more like so then some of the cultures reminded me a lot of that 30 for 30 yoga thing the bikram thing we heard about yeah yeah because yeah. yeah. the whole Absolutely. business aspect like you'd, you'd go back to your own town and so you'd set up your own school and you'd teach people and you'd be certified and you'd charge them for classes and if they said they couldn't afford it you would say well you can't afford not to do it yeah it reminded me a lot of that i mean that kind of yeah. kept popping up for me over and over again when i was thinking about it um it was kind of like See, I, it's like multi-level marketing. Yeah, crossed on empowerment, crossed on oh yeah, and this guy who's in charge wants to have sex with everyone, <laughs> and he's not even that attractive. You're really I hung mean, up like, on that, Laura. Is that a problem for you that he wants to have sex with everyone? I <laughs> think well, that's the whole you know, key. Yeah, I'm yeah. just like what? I, I honestly, I think this whole thing is basically set up so he can sleep with lots of women. Oh, and I, nice I think, work if you can get it. He's got the secret I think it, woman. I think it, I think it gets tipped like when they talk about. I can't remember. It's like his sister or his mom or something hears him on the phone. Right. When he's like yep. fourteen or fifteen, and he's like talking to all these different girls and saying, you know, there's a special connection and you're special and all this stuff. And she's like, he's literally saying this to like ten different girls. Yeah. I, I don't know if I I brought this up in a different context, but I was reading this uh, article about Harvey Weinstein, and this guy was saying there's this impression that like Weinstein. Like wanted to make movies, and once he started doing that, he got access to these beautiful women, and that was when he started abusing them. And he's like Har- Harvey Weinstein made movies because he wanted access to women, right? Like that was the goal all along. Maybe that wasn't everybody else's impression, but that was my sense of of what his prime motivation was, and that was what kind of made him so kind of lazy and yeah. you know. 
just just like grabbing stuff. He's like, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this other <laughs> shit. So I'll grab it from these different places. Yeah. Find the stuff that seems to pull people in. And, and and kind of hold on to them, and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, it was definitely like a, a processed food uh, of cults. <laughs> now, I'm going to go around the horn and ask you each to react to something, each different things that I heard in the podcast. I would love to get your thoughts. Laura Bricker, because I think this is something that you might try, what do you think of the scene where Josh tried to sneak into the uh, that Nexium office or ESP <laughs> office in Brooklyn or wherever the hell he was and you really just walked in the door and, and, and tried to get in that way. Yeah, I've totally done stuff like that <laughs> um, where he's just like, the door's open. I'll keep walking. And then he comes in and he kind of is like, hey, uh, is this the uh, place? And she's like, who the hell are you? And he's just like, well, my friend told me to come here. Who's your friend? Like, I totally would have. I loved it. I was like, come on, get in. And I'm like, no, don't get in. They're not going to let you leave. They're going to brand you for crying out loud. But yeah, I, I did enjoy that scene. It, that was kind of fun. Kevin, what did you think of Sarah and Nippy's plan to go hard and blow that shit up by having videotaped tantrums oh, in very public places? I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> I thought that was great because, yeah, it really um, it just put them on blast right yeah. in the middle of the uh, whatever the conference or hotel. I forget where they were at this gathering. I think they were like one of Keith's stupid birthday things, weren't they, or something? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Playing volleyball. <laughs> And Toby, that was my question for you. I mean, I don't know who the person you admire the most in the world is, but imagine you did admire somebody as much as Sarah admired Keith there for a while. Would you go to a month-long birthday party for that person for 12 fucking years in a row? I would go to anybody who has a month-long birthday party. (laughs) Sign me up, man. That sounds awesome. My favorite part of the... Well, I think I said another part was my favorite part, but another one of my favorite parts was... uh, was when she's talking about how Keith was sleeping with all these women and like making approaches to him. She basically says like she didn't believe it because he hadn't put a move on her and she looks like looks at the other people who he's trying to sleep with and was like, well, he would totally try a move on me, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm an eight. She's a four. Kevin, another quick thing to respond to. Uh, turns out Keith's lawyer was also Martin Shkreli's lawyer. Surprised? <laughs> Oh, uh, I'm, no, I'm not surprised. I'd love to know what you think of that lawyer. I'm actually it's something I want to talk about. I think I, he was I fascinating. He, I thought he did very well by I his hi- clients. I yeah. would hire him to defend me in a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if that means that I would, you know, exonerate the, uh, you know, acquit the uh, the guy if I were on the jury. What you don't think it's a but cuddle I, cult, not a sex cult? Cu- hey, you know, I mean, <laughs> we have seen on television this year some really impressive TV lawyers. Yes. And uh, I think he's just very good at at his job. He ends up making a very strong case for his, his client, and that's what everyone's entitled to, like it or not. He was like the Michael Avenatti of cult defenders. Like, he did mm. not mind being a whole episode of this podcast. No, Laura, what, what did you think of his access there to that this lawyer for, for Keith Rainier? Were you surprised that this guy was willing to sit down and be a whole episode no. of the podcast? No, I thought, you know, I know a lot of people, a lot of people in my rage um, walking group were like really enraged by this guy and like, oh, you better watch out when you get to him. And I was like, he's a defense lawyer. He's doing his job. And he he did it in such a way. So he's not confrontational with the reporter. He's not being an ass to the reporter. He's advocating for his client. And yeah, okay, um, the cuddle cult, that's totally ridiculous. He said some shitty things while advocating for his client. But that's what you want when you have a defense lawyer. He did, but he was doing his job. But then I really loved how he's like trying to like frame Keith and his his, like visits with him in jail where he's just like, he's just on a different plane. And like, he's so smart. And when I talk to him, 
him and he's just he's not interested in the case because he's talking about all this other he's just in a different place like he's trying to like create this persona perpetuate this persona that Keith himself has started but I, I thought he did a good job and I thought that in the way that he did it yeah it was like ridiculous but at the same time you're like okay yeah you know look at look at your other clients obviously you're good at what you do i want to point out one particularly shitty thing he said on behalf of his client that certainly got my attention and i'm not saying i agree with him when i say he's a good lawyer i'm saying he's a good lawyer but this was a super shitty thing that he said women want to be in a secret group and want to be branded and all of a sudden we're very quick to say oh poor dears they must be victims because no no right-thinking, free-willed woman would ever want that for herself. And I think that's sexist. And I think the government is playing into a sexist agenda. You know, men do these things, we call them Marines. You know, women do these things, we call them victims. And I think that's offensive. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was kind of ridiculous, to put it mildly. I forgot about that part. I think I blacked it out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, in the final episode of this podcast, we hear Josh, you know, get some pushback from his friends who also know Sarah about Sarah. She's now given interviews to The New York Times. She's become like a media figure around this. People know there are, you know, potentially like movies in development about this. She's, you know, seen some success. She's living in a nice apartment now because of the money that she made. And I think he very impressively pushes back on her. Like he doesn't he doesn't say, what if people want to know, blah, blah, blah. He says, do you think you should give the money back? What do you think? I think he does a nice job pushing back on her. And there's a really gross scene, of course, in which she blows her nose, which I didn't need to hear. But <laughs> that episode does make me think a little bit about landing differently, perhaps, on how I feel about Sarah. Toby, where did you land on Sarah when this is all said and done? Was she... A victim? Is she a little bit of an opportunist with her redemption story or somewhere in between? What do you think? I mean, I I think she's complicated. and I think she's also, I think she's one of those people, I I don't want to make this sound meaner than I mean it, but (laughs) it, it seems as though she feels like she's a deep thinker without really thinking about much. I mean, I think she... Now, I get what you're saying. The way it came out was kind of funny. <laughs> I get what you're putting it, down, Toby. She's an actress, too. I mean, that's something I think it's important to consider in all of these scenes, right? Right. But, you know, she's like, I went on the boat and I was, you know, I wanted to find out, you know, I wanted to like, I can't remember exactly what she put it, but basically she wanted to to find herself or, or not even find herself, but find somebody who could help her find herself. And then... At the end, you know, these questions that should be really, really troubling her. I got out of this thing, but I pulled a whole bunch of people in it and I built them out of a lot of money. And that's the kind of thing I think most people would be haunted by. And then she gets asked about it. She's like, uh... Uh, well, you know, it's I like, I can see it both ways. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is the kind of stuff, like if you were as thoughtful and introspective as you'd like to portray yourself, like this should, should be eating you up. Mm. It shouldn't be up to Josh to like bring this stuff up to you and be like, oh, hmm. Hadn't thought about that. Well, yeah, well, maybe. I don't know. Well, the one thing that really struck me was that when she was talking about her culpability in recruiting people. She talked about being a great salesperson, and then she talked about the sales tactics that she didn't do, and then she recited them, and I was like, oh, you totally did that sales tactic. You can tell she's just so good at it. 
And I'm not saying she's not a victim. I think she is. But I agree with you, Toby, that maybe the waters don't run as deep as as she likes to pretend that they do. Laura, what do you think? Where did you land on Sarah at the end of the podcast? I was kind of ambivalent about Sarah in a way because in the beginning, like I said, the first episode, I felt extreme compassion and sympathy and horror hearing the branding scene. And then listening to this sort of... Mm, you're not quite as innocent in all of this as you think you might be mm. in a way. I mean, yes, she was obviously a victim and she got sucked in. So I kind of came down. I was like, mm, I, I couldn't really feel strongly one way or the other because there was, you know, on both sides things that changed how I felt about her. So the way you feel about Sarah is the way she feels about herself at the end of the podcast. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm exactly with Laura. On yeah. That. Yeah. I felt very much like at the you know the beginning that she was uh you know, horribly victimized by the system, and at the end, you wonder that you don't you don't change your mind that she was a, a victim, having been branded and gone through all the other things that she went through. But I feel like I'm left to wonder more about her culpability and other actions. Yes, you know, and I think Josh is too, which I think is a very good thing to include in the podcast. I have one other quasi negative thing to say about Sarah, even though I think she comes off pretty well in the podcast. Mm-hmm. She seems far more concerned about this little scar in her body than she does about what she did to other people. She talks about that an awful lot. Like there's something on her otherwise perfect body mm-hmm. that wasn't there before. And you know what, though? Like you're fine otherwise. I mean, you're traumatized. Obviously, she's not fine. I don't mean that. She's got PTSD. Things are not great with her marriage. We know all of that. But she's alive. She's moving forward in her life. She's going through some sort of redemptive process And she's way more hung up on that than she is on the broader impact on her community, which was like, it stuck out to me a little bit. All right, well, let's do that thing that we do. Let's give our thumbs up, thumbs down review. Should our listeners check out Uncover Escaping Nexium by the CBC? I should mention Uncover is the broader name for this podcast. I think what they're going to be doing is releasing a series of stories in Mm -hmm. the same podcast feed. And this first one was called Escaping Nexium. Laura Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down? Should our listeners check it out? Oh, God. This is where I really want to bring back thumbs sideways. You say Um, that every week, Laura. Yeah, shut the fuck up about that, Laura, already. Commit. Commit. Um, (laughs) You just told Laura to shut the fuck up. I did tell her to shut the fuck up. I don't want to give it a thumbs down because it was a good podcast, but I think I've just, I'm kind of Roger Ebert used to do and say thumbs slightly up. You can be, you can couch okay, it. Okay, I'm yeah. thumbs, I'm thumbs slightly up because you know I didn't love it. I didn't, you know, it was well done. But I just feel like we've listened to a lot of other cult podcasts, and uh, I feel like after the Rajanishis and the Scientologists and the people with the purple sneakers getting sucked up by the comet, like I feel like. This one was interesting, but it just, i, I maybe I'm just burned out on cults. I don't know. Tell me, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Uncover, Escaping, Nexium? I like the cult stuff. I thought this was good, so I'll give it a thumbs up. Yeah, I liked it too. I thought it was dishy. I thought it was juicy. Uh, it was very Canadian, which I really appreciated. I love hearing Canadians telling stories. And so different for the CBC than other true crime-oriented podcasts that we've listened to them do. I mean, so different texturally. Then Connie Walker's podcast and then Someone Knows Something. I love the music. I love the mixing. Loved all that stuff. And um, it was dishy. It's not my strongest thumbs up, but it's definitely a thumbs up. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, I'm a slightly thumbs up uh, with Laura. I think that it was uneven. And the middle kind of dragged a little bit. Um, The episode with the lawyer was interesting, but sort of out of texture for the whole series. Uh, I think they probably could have tightened it up. 
but the beginning was super compelling, and I definitely wanted to stick. It was so good, I I wanted to stick around to the end to find out how things happened. I probably could have just Googled it and figured it. <laughs> like the Battlestar Galactica esque theme song as much as I did. I didn't think of it that way, but um, <laughs> but you know, I have to think that perhaps this whole thing could have been avoided if instead they had just used the home cleaning professionals at handy. That would have avoided everything? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me more. Listen, America, <laughs> there's no need to set up your own multi-level marketing. Lazy cult. Lazy cult where you have people that are going to wait on you seven days a week. You could just use the app at handy <laughs> and schedule someone to come and clean your house. Just, also, just pay for like a service. Don't bilk them out of their own savings. Yeah, you don't, right. You don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to bring them into the whole. <laughs> you don't have to get the the the, 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 the sodding iron out and <laughs> you know brand your initials in them. Okay, tell no, me more. Just go to Handy. They have a whole bunch of. Uh, professionals in your area that will help you with house cleaning or also maybe doing a little um, electrical work mm. or other, th- other things. Jobs. Wherever you might need a handyman, you could use Handy. And Handy, it, uh, their services are backed by the Handy Happiness Guarantee. All the pros are background checked and you can learn more about them at Handy. Com. I thought what was really great about the service is the app. I mean, it's fantastic because you could just go on there and schedule uh, when you want someone to come. You tell them a little bit about how many bedrooms and bathrooms and whatnot. Boop. And they will pair you with a professional in your area. Or if you want, you can also go through and just pick out somebody in particular and get on their schedule. You can get your first three-hour cleaning for $39 Ooh. when you sign up for a plan. Visit handy.com slash crime, crime and use promo code crime during checkout. That's handy.com slash crime, crime and use the promo code crime to get your first three-hour cleaning for $39 when you sign up for a plan. Recurring charges, terms, and conditions apply. Visit handy.com to learn more. What else you got, Kevin? Well, you know, when you're out having a horrible rage walk, yes, you need to get healthy fuel and you need it fast. Yes. And that's why we turn to Daily Harvest. Yes, we love Daily Harvest. I know that Laura, when she's out there screaming mad about the latest podcast, working a huff and puff when she gets back, She likes to add a little water or milk to the cup, blend it or heat it, and just have a great cup of frozen organic fruits and vegetables. And remember, Daily Harvest is just mailed right to your door. Delicious smoothies right to your door. You pick all sorts of great flavors. It's, you know, there's new plant-based ready-to-blend protein smoothies and their dessert-inspired flavor packs. And, you know, they're full of protein and no chalky powders. Rebecca, you tell me, what's your favorite Daily Harvest. I've really been loving, and the summer's almost over, but I've really, this summer, been loving those watermelon cucumber ones. Light, delicious, easy to make, on the go. Love them. Go to daily-harvest.com and enter promo code CRIME, crime. and get three cups free in your first box. That's promo code CRIME, crime for three free Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. Daily-harvest.com. What else you got, Kevin? Again, when you're out there on that rage walk, you're going to need a comfortable <laughs> pair of shoes. That's right. Shoes you can feel good about. Shoes that are stylish, sustainable, and comfortable enough for everyday wear anywhere. Are you talking about Rothy's? Rothy's shoes. They are the softest shoe you will ever put on your feet. And if I told you they were made from recycled plastic water bottles, would you believe me? I only believe you because I already know that. But if I didn't know that, I would not believe you. Yeah. You can also throw those shoes right in the machine. The the washing machine. Oh, yeah. You don't my want, feet stank. You don't want <laughs> you don't want feet sweat when you've been walking 
all through the town of Exeter, right. huffing and puffing. No. Tell yeah. me about your shoes, Laura. Do you have the flats? I do have the flats with the regular little rounded toes, and I got some beautiful, they're like kind of purple pink ones. They're kind of, you know, fun and festive, and I get so many compliments when I wear them. And I love the fact that you can wash them because, you know, my feet do stink. And they always say, Laura, what are you listening to? Because your face is as purple as your shoes. <laughs> they do, yes. <laughs> right now, Rothy's has an amazing deal. Use code CRIME to Crime. get free shipping. No minimum. That's free shipping and free returns and exchanges on your Rothy's shoes. When you go to Rothy's, R-O-T-H-Y-S, dot com and enter CRIME. Crime. This is a no-brainer. Shoes that are comfortable, stylish, and sustainable. Rothy's.com. Use promo code CRIME. CRIME. Now it's time for my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week. week. Dateline, Huntington, New York. A Long Island man was arrested for allegedly threatening an 11-year-old boy after the boy beat him in the popular video game Fortnite. WPIX, our childhood TV station, Kevin. 11 Alive. Reports that Michael Alaperi, 45, faces charges of second-degree harassment and acting in a manner to injure a child, according to the Suffolk County Police Department. Police say Alaperi threatened to shoot the boy after losing to him in Fortnite. The 11-year-old reported the threats, which were made through text messages and online voice messages using the Xbox gaming system, according to police. So, guys, here's my question for you. This guy clearly had an extreme and potentially violent reaction toward an 11-year-old child as a result of this video game. Mm-hmm. But let's face it, we can all relate a little bit. Has a game ever caused you to have an out-of-proportion reaction to a kid? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to say that this particular game, Fortnite, has had, <laughs> I have had some reactions to this game which have involved me unplugging the Wi Fi <laughs> in my house and yanking it out of the wall. So, um, no, I have not taken my anger out like this, but I, I, yes, I have ripped the Wi Fi right out. So, yes. What about you, Toby Ball? Have you ever had an out of proportion reaction toward a kid after playing a game? I always comport myself as a gentleman <laughs> in any contest. Until his son was big enough to dunk on him. That's right. This reminds me, Kevin, of that time that when Henry was in second grade and he was in the chess club. Yeah. And he brought over his friend Paul, who we now know as 17-year-old Paul, who was still a freaking stupid genius. And Paul was like the captain of the chess club and like beat all the kids and beat the teacher and beat the principal. And I beat Paul in chess at one game and I was like, yes! You and you were in like, his face, yeah. He's seven. <laughs> I was very excited, though. What about you, Kevin? Have you ever played a game with a kid and had an out-of-proportion reaction? Oh, so maybe. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the time, and the time that I most remember is when you and I, mm. Henry and Teddy, were playing Super Mario Brothers. Mm. And they are like savants. Yes. Right? And we're trying to learn like- They were super young. Yeah, and we're like, what button does what? And it's kind of like, you know, you're you're running from the left-hand side of the screen, you know, towards the right. That's how, like, the, the gameplay works. And of the four of you, if the guy in the lead runs so far ahead that the guy in the back ends up going off the screen, he's dead. Right. And they kept doing that, and I was like, wait up for me. And, you know, they jump on these, like, uh, I don't know, with the Mushrooms. horses that, like, swallow <laughs> them in the mouth. And it was just it was just so weird. And I just said, you guys are not playing right. <laughs> Remember what they did to solve the problem? 
Oh, yes. They carried us in their mouths through the game. Yeah. That's what they did. They picked up our characters and carried them in their mouths, and they would spit us out on the new screen. Yeah. It was yeah. demoralizing. All right, we should probably end it on that note, but before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do, because nobody sent me any other animals besides cats, which is fine with me, but I know we're going to have to mix it up, so send your dogs and lizards next week. Um, Ashley Rivers, nice job, Ashley. You know I love a good rescue story. She rescued a kitten from behind a restaurant back in August that was starving. It was under a pound. She was super underweight. Um, unfortunately, Ashley was allergic, so she's been able to find a home for the cat, and the little kitten is going to a house in a few weeks. That's very nice. Mm. It, it was very nice. It was a feel-good. I needed a feel-good story this week, so I was thankful that Ashley sent that along. That's a real feel-good story. Laura Berger, if you want to submit their other kinds of animals besides cats to you for Cat of the Week, how can they reach you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And of course, they can also pay $6 to join your Facebook rage walking <laughs> group on Patreon. Yeah, maybe next week I'll pick a dog from that group. At patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Toy Ball, if people want to reach out to you to say hello, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And also, can I do a quick plug? On October 4th, I am going to be uh, doing a program at the Charlotte, Vermont Public Library. Nice. At 7 hmm. o'clock. Probably grabbing a couple of beers afterwards. So uh, if you're in that area, stop on by. So we will put a link to that in our show notes. Toby, can you send me a link? Sure. Now, Toby Ball, at the $5 Patreon level, of course, we have the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. What is on deck for the next podcast, Toby Ball? Early next week, we're going to be recording on The Monster of Florence mm. by Douglas Preston. Kevin Flynn, do you have anything to plug or just want to give your cat your Twitter handle? Uh, yeah, I want to thank the folks who've already signed up to sponsor me for my Walk a Mile in Her Shoes Walkathon. Next week, it's happening. And on our next episode, I will thank everybody who donated some money. Again, it's a walkathon where I will be walking in high heel shoes to raise money for our local crisis center. There's a link in that in our show notes. Yeah. And if you want, you can tweet to me at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to me or follow me on Instagram at Reb Lavoie. You can follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Join our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. It's a really good time. I'm going to skip a bunch of these credits because we did a bunch of these plugs tonight and just say this. Our theme song was performed by the Nurse God Jazz Ensemble and this show was recorded in the Yoga Loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we have the toughest pot laws in our whole house. On behalf of all the Crime Writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. hell is going on with all these trains tonight? It is a train of Palooza at your house. Train! Something is, something is going I'm down. I'm worried about all the hobos that must be in your backyard right now. <laughs> I know. Hey, the train <laughs> used to go through this. my backyard, too, when I lived in Newmarket. And oh. did you have hobos? Did you have hobo infestation? I don't know. There was some, like, <laughs> down by the train tracks. Like, there was, like, Damn places where people definitely hung train out. Tracks. And I don't know if it was, like, hobos or teenagers. Or perhaps teenage hobos. I haven't seen any hobos yet, but sometimes they park, like the freight train will park behind my house and there's like, you know, compartments open and I'm always like, somebody could just hop off and come and kill me. Yeah, and it would no be a hobo. Would know. <laughs> <laughs> you would never know. It's literally what a hobo is, Laura. <laughs> well, would you guys write a nice story about me if I got murdered by a hobo? <laughs> uh, we'd have Payne Lindsay do it. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I want Bill Rankin to do it. <laughs> guy came off the train and killed Laura. <laughs> Picked up a cat and shoved it down her throat. <laughs> <laughs> then took photos of her for collateral. It's not nice to call them hobos. <laughs> <laughs> They're hobo Americans. <laughs>
partners in crime media. Evelyn and Bobby's women-led intimates company creates beautiful, purposeful products to make women's lives better. They've created the best underwear ever, combining unique softness with smooth, flat seams that offer a fit so comfortable, you'll forget you're wearing them. Evelyn and Bobby comes in three silhouettes and one size that fits many, with four-way stretch that moves with you. Visit EvelynBobby.com and use code Crime to get a free pair of knickers with any purchase. That's a $28 value only when you use the code CRIME at EvelynBobby.com.